I have four children. We have uh, two sons that we adopted from Africa, and we have two birth daughters. And when we go to the pool, the kids love it. And since it's the season for going to the pool, it means that I get to do more reading than usual because I get to sit by the side of the pool. But I cannot read at the pool unless I have assurance that my kids are safe. So what that means for my two little daughters, they have these floaties that we put on them. One is bright pink and one is bright blue. And I have my two black boys. And so I need two things. Everything, uh, whenever I'm at the pool, two things give me assurance. One is I need a strategic position where I can see both the adult pool and the kiddie pool. I can see everything from my, my point where I am. And the second thing I need is a head count every five minutes. So I'm sitting there reading, and then I'll look up, and I'll do a quick scan, and I'll count. Black, black, pink, blue. Good. Back to the book. <laughs> and I have to do that. If I can't see a child, I have to get up and walk around because I need the facts. I have to get the facts into the light so I can have assurance that they're safe. This is also true of the Christian life. John writes his first letter that we're studying this summer, the book of 1 John, he writes this letter so that you and I can have assurance of our faith. You see, we've believed in Christ to receive life. If we read his gospel, if we trusted in Jesus, we've believed in him to receive life. And so how can we be sure that we still have that eternal life as our lives go on? That's the question he's addressing in this letter. How can I have assurance that I will be with God forever? That he's not going to change his mind about me? That he won't deny my application at the last minute? And it's this assurance of faith is just like my assurance at the pool. Assurance requires exposure. We must bring the facts into the light. Because without the facts, assurance is shaky. But with the facts, assurance becomes rock solid. Now, which facts are they that need to come into the light? Through this letter, John is going to give us three tests for assurance. Are you obeying the commands? Are you loving the brothers? And are you confessing that Jesus is the Christ? Obedience, love, and confessing Christ. Those are the three tests. But before he hits the tests, we must clarify that assurance requires exposure. So we're going to be in chapter 1 of 1 John. If you have a church Bible, uh, it's on page 660. If you need a Bible, you can still put your hand up and someone will come around. We're on page 660. Before John hits the actual three tests, he must clarify that assurance requires exposure. We must be willing to confront the brutal facts about our lives. We can't evaluate the tests unless we're willing to bring the facts into the light. However, before we will ever be comfortable with exposing ourselves in that way, we must know three things. And this is your outline. We must know that first, God's nature is to expose. Second, we don't respond well to exposure. But third, Jesus defends the exposed. I'm going to read from 1 John Chapter 1, starting at verse 5. But before I do that, let's pray together and ask God for our time here. 
Lord, we confess that you are the eternal God and you stepped into history in the person of your son and you rescued us and redeemed us that we might be with you forever. We ask now that you would illuminate your word. Father, please send your spirit and grant us understanding, grant us insight and help us to walk in the light as you are in the light that we might know you and have assurance of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 1, starting at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. First, we need to see that God's nature is to expose We see this in verse five, where John says, this is the message we've heard from him. We proclaim to you. We got this right from Jesus. We saw it. He told us, and I'm giving it to you. This is the message that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John states it positively and then he states it negatively. God is light. He's all light. He's only light. And he states it negatively. Darkness cannot be found with him at all. In him is no darkness. Darkness cannot be found in him or near him. Any hint of darkness is incompatible with this God who is light. And you see, this God is not just like light. He's not just with light. He is light. It's his nature to be light to shine light. And he's been this way from the very beginning. If you remember when he created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter one, what was his very first creative act? It was to create light. Let there be light. And there was light. What does light do? John's told us that in his gospel, that light shines in the darkness but the darkness cannot overcome it. That's in John 1, 5. If you remember again, at the creation of the first day, the earth was a formless, was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. And when he made the light, the light came and blew the darkness back. This is his nature, that God is light. When God is in the picture, here's the thing. There is nowhere to hide. 
There is no darkness in him at all. There is no such thing with God as being under cover of darkness. You can't plan a nighttime assault against the enemy's position. You can't conduct a burglary while the owner of all the earth sleeps because with him there is no darkness. These things work only when something is darkened or covered, but God is light. In other words, God is the great exposer. He shines. He illuminates. How does this apply? Here's the thing. You, you can't know God and avoid the light because God is light. You can't know God and avoid the light. It's sort of like going to the fourth fest in a few days and hoping to avoid people. You can't go to fourth fest and avoid people because the nature of fourth fest is that's where all the people are. You can't know God and avoid the light. God is a little bit like me at the pool. He's in the best position to see everything. And he wants to know all the facts. He brings all the facts to light, except he's still very different from me. God is penetrating. He is focused. He is insightful. He is aware. He is fixated. He is understanding. And you can't trick him or trap him or deceive him or defeat him. You can't ever sneak up behind him or distract him. And for some of you, this should be terrifying because this means that God knows everything about you and you cannot hide and you will never be able to hide from him. But for others, this is wonderfully comforting because what it means is that God knows everything. He will not be surprised on the last day by anything about you. And still, he calls you his child. He sees everything, yet he won't remove his gaze of affection from you. He understands all there is to know about you. And he sent his son to die for you anyway. This is the first thing we must know if we are to be comfortable with exposure. It's that God's nature is to expose. But second, John moves on to say that we don't respond well to this exposure. Regardless of whether you're terrified or comforted by the fact that God's nature is to expose, something must give. Because God is light and there's nowhere to hide, but there is a lot of stuff in us that we like to keep hidden. Total exposure is no fun. So, John addresses three common tactics that we use to cope with the light. And he introduces each one of them with, if we say, you can see in the verses 6, 8, and 10, if we say, if we say, if we say, he repeats that phrase. So here's the first tactic. Number one, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this tactic is to shore up our defenses. We say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness. In other words, we talk a lot about God but very little about ourselves. We talk all about God and about our fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness. We don't talk about ourselves. We keep ourselves hidden. We love the sentiments of a relationship with God. We love to talk about love and joy and the peace he gives us and fulfillment and contentment, but we hate the possibility of total disclosure. So we keep parts of our lives in darkness. 
we don't really come clean with God or with other people. We sweep some things under the rug. It might be an addiction. It might be a bad habit. It might be a character flaw. It might even be a painful memory or a secret hope. And what John says, when we say we have fellowship with God, but walk in darkness, the end of verse six, he says, we lie and do not practice the truth because we are acting as though there is darkness with God, as though we can be close to God and still have parts of our lives hidden in darkness. And that's a lie. We act as though hiding is okay. We act as though there is no rescue for sin because we have to hide it and keep it protected. And this really makes sense for why we do it, because, you know, if, um, if, if, if I am such a sinner, it, my sin is hard to deal with. Have you ever tried to deal with your sin? It's hard. You see God standing over there and he's light and his nature is light. And you say, I want to be with him. And so you go over and you start. And as soon as you come down under the light, into the light, a snake pops out of your chest. And you're like, what is that? I didn't know that was in there. And you're wrestling the thing and you're beating it down and you crush it and you step on it. And you, oh, I'm so glad I got rid of that thing. And I'm going to come back over here because I don't want any more snakes to come out. Can you relate to that? That's what we do. I'll show you how I do it, what, what that means. I'll give you an example. For my whole life, I have been obsessed with my body image. When I was young, I used to spend way too much time in front of the mirror. I had to get my hair just exactly right. I wanted to get the part right, every single hair. I wanted my shirt tucked in a perfect amount and my pants at just the right place on my waist. I would even practice certain poses in front of the mirror to make sure that they didn't look too bad. Yeah. And, you know, now I'm so much more refined about it. Okay? I don't struggle with those things anymore. Now what I do in the morning, I'm brushing my teeth and I'm, I'm looking at the baby that's about to come out. And, <laughs> and I just start feeling guilty about the previous day's gluttony that I engaged in. And even though I, I weigh less right now than I did when I was in high school, I, I still have put on 15 pounds from where I was a few years ago, and I start to get guilty about that. And so I make sure that my shirts are baggy enough, and I always wear a swim shirt at the pool because, you know, it's cool to do that, and, and then people can't really see the stuff that I'm embarrassed of that I want to keep hidden. And, you know, then I can justify it because I don't have to put on as much sunblock, and it saves us money, you know. Buying sunblock. But you know, I wouldn't mind if the whole weight issue, the whole image issue just went away. If I didn't have to deal with it. If I could keep it tucked in a dark corner of my life and lock it up and have it never come out. You know what I think would totally rock? Is if I could become a disembodied voice. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of Star Wars, episode four. You know, Use your feelings. And I could be here and I could preach to you with my voice, but I wouldn't have a body. That would be awesome. Those are some of the snakes that pop out of my chest. And they're ugly, and I don't like them. And I'm wrestling them, and I'm fighting them. But sometimes I feel like I just want to keep it in the dark. So what is it for you where you shore up your defenses? When, and when sin is so hard to deal with, how can we possibly have hope of walking in the light with our God? And John wants to help us. So in verse 7, 
he gives us both motivation and power to do it. Notice first the motivation. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This is the motivation. It's that we're all a group of sinners, but we're walking together with our God. And you're not in it alone. As you walk with God in the light, you walk with each other, with God in the light. And so as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and we can cheer one another on and and remind ourselves that it's worth it to walk in the light. It's worth it. Even though these ugly things pop out of your heart, it's worth it because that's where the Lord is and we all want to be there together with him. And that's the motivation he gives. But then he goes on to give the power. What actually enables you to go through this difficult process? He says, the end of verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the power. When that snake pops out of your heart and you have to wrestle it to the ground and break its neck and crush its head, cleansing is available to you. There is really power in this blood. And that power comes not just one time, the first day that you became a Christian, because remember, John is talking to people who have already become Christians, who are trying to have assurance that they have eternal life. This cleansing comes every day, every sin, every time you are exposed. You experience the cleansing power of Jesus' blood all over again. And so exposure enables you to experience this cleansing power. That there is real power, power to cleanse you, and power to endure prolonged exposure under God's light without having to defend yourself, without having to shore up your defenses. Here's the truth. You're blank here. The truth is that because of Jesus' blood, we are free to come out of hiding. Because of Jesus' blood, we're free to come out of hiding. That's the first tactic where we don't respond well as we try to shore up our defenses. Tactic number two in verse eight is to deny our sinfulness. To deny our sinfulness. Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When faced with exposure, this tactic is to say we have no sin. This has to do with your fundamental identity apart from Christ. And with this tactic, you talk a lot about yourself, but very little about God, especially his view of sin. So with this tactic, under this tactic, when I employ this, I am not a sinner. That's not my identity apart from Christ. I'm not a sinner. I'm good person. I'm innocent. I'm nice guy. Or maybe we think, Children are innocent or people are inherently good. We, whatever it is, it comes down to we have no sin. Perhaps you think that I've got my act together. I don't need a crutch. Or I'm not a glutton. I just like food. Or I'm not greedy. I just have my hobbies. I'm not a lover of pleasure. I'm just a fun-loving person. I'm not a gossip I'm just concerned with the situation. I'm not walking in darkness. I'm just a private person and an introvert. 
I'm not an angry person. People just make me so mad. In other words, maybe I'll admit to doing some bad things, but I am not a bad person. That is this tactic. And John says in verse 8 that if this is you, you are deceiving yourself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Because, friends, the Bible tells us exactly what is wrong with the world. And you know what is wrong with the world? It's not the media. It's not Obamacare. It's not the legalization of same-sex marriage. That's not what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is me and you. Because none is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. So when I'm talking to someone and and I'm getting to know them and I ask them how they became a Christian, tell me your story. And they, they tell me their story. I start to get a little nervous if in their story I hear a lot of activities, but I don't hear anything about sin or Jesus' death on the cross. And I start to wonder, does this person really know God? Because if they don't have this fundamental understanding of their identity that I am a sinner in need of rescue, then they might not know God. But the truth here that John goes on to say in verse 9 is this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth is this, that God is faithful and God is just. In other words, he's faithful, which means that when you confess your sins, he promises to forgive you and cleanse you. And God is faithful. He always does what he says he's going to do. And God is just because when you come into the light and trust in Jesus, God must forgive you. And he will do the just thing because Jesus already paid the penalty for your sin. He is faithful and just. And so you are free to label the issue correctly. And you can say, Father, please forgive me for being a Fill in the blank. And you don't have to use a bad word necessarily, but please forgive me for being a glutton. Please forgive me for being a gossip. Please forgive me for being a proud man. Please forgive me for being an angry person. You can label it correctly. You can confess your sins. That's what confession means in verse 9. If we confess our sins, it just means you label it correctly. So here's the truth. Here's your blank. Because God is faithful and just, we are free to confess. We're free to confess. So that's tactic number two, is to deny our sinfulness. But because God's faithful and just, we're free to confess. Here's tactic number three. Refuse to change. Refuse to change. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, when faced with exposure, sometimes we say we have not sinned. In other words, we talk a lot about what we did right, but very little about what we did wrong. The difference between tactics two and three is the difference between general and particular. So tactic two is the general one having to do with your identity. I am not a sinful person. This tactic is the particular tactic about a behavior. This thing I just did was not a sin. That's this tactic. I have not sinned. 
And this tactic is important to understand because sometimes it can be easy to admit that, in general, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. But when push comes to shove and you're challenged on a specific thing that you just said or did, then it's so hard, so hard to admit. We hedge and groan and excuse and blame. For example, if someone says to me, you hurt me when you said that, I'll, I'll respond with, but you hurt me. Or if someone says, you said you struggled with greed. Do you really need to buy this thing? I, yes, I do. I have all my reasons. I have really good reasons. Or if someone, or maybe I've admitted to having pride and being a proud person, but I never admit to specific instances of pride. I fail to connect my recent behaviors with the long-standing patterns. And so I might respond when people get upset, but I won't take ownership of my life to search and destroy the issue. Do you know what is the F word for Christians? The word that is so bad that we're usually too horrified to say it. It's the word forgive. Forgive. You know how hard that is to say? As in, will you please forgive me? How many other things do we say in order to avoid the F word? I'm sorry that happened. I apologize for what I did. I'm sorry you were offended. Yeah, that, yep, that thing, that's really hard for me. You're right about that. That's hard for me. Or, what will make that easier for you? What can I do that will get you not to be so upset next time? But what the Lord wants us to say is, will you please forgive me? I did that thing, that was wrong, will you please forgive me? And you see, when we do these things, in verse 10, he says this, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So when you do this, when you fail to own up to specific behaviors, you're making God to be a liar. The Bible speaks against selfish anger, but you go ahead and just call it frustration. And make it okay. God opposes the proud, but we call them movers and shakers. Or we nurture and excuse our lust and our love of pleasure, even suggesting at times that such things can never change. And we love our buzzwords. We love phrases like, oh, it's a besetting sin. What that means is it will never go away. I can never change. And you need to stop holding it against me. And John says, if you do that, you are making God a liar. The God who said that he will complete his work in you, that he will conform you to the image of Christ, the one who calls you to walk in holiness. You're saying he's a liar, that this thing about you can never change? His word is not in you, because if his word were in you, it would start to work change in your life. What is the truth here? The blank is because Jesus Christ is righteous, and I'm going to get to that in just a second, the righteousness. But because he's righteous, we are free to change. And that's our hope in this tactic. Because Jesus is righteous, we're free to change. So God's nature is to expose, but we don't respond well to exposure. But we can't end there. I can't just pray and send you on your way and say, stop doing this. Because John goes on to tell us where the real power here lies. And you have to understand this. You'll never be comfortable being exposed, coming into the light, until you understand this third thing. 
that Jesus defends the exposed. You see, in in verse 1 of chapter 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing in part to prevent sin. But if anyone does sin, and we know from the scripture that everyone does sin, you must know this. You must know that Jesus, the righteous one, defends you. What does it mean that he's righteous? The end of verse 1 calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. To be righteous, it means that he is good and he is perfect and he was accepted by God. So Jesus is qualified to defend you. And he defends you in two ways. He defends you in two ways. The first way is as a defense attorney. He defends you as a defense attorney. John says this in verse 1, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate is the legal term for one's representative who argues on behalf of the accused before the judge. It's a defense attorney. So God, the mighty judge, is in his courtroom, and he allows only one attorney into his courtroom, Jesus Christ the righteous, the accepted one. So if you don't have him for your attorney, you're on your own. But Jesus, if you have him, then he defends you by arguing your case before God the judge. He is your advocate. And the way Jesus argues is not to say, God, let this person go because he is righteous. Jesus says, God, let this person go because I am righteous. Your advocate is with the Father is Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, Father, you have accepted me. You commissioned me to die for the sin of the world. And this one, this man, this woman is one of mine for whom I died. And you are faithful and you are just. So you must let this person go free. That's how Jesus argues. And there ain't no better argument than that. So Jesus defends you as a defense attorney. But second, he defends you as a defense barrier. It's letter B, as a defense barrier. John goes on to say this in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is this big, fancy, old-fashioned theological term. All it means is this. That's propitiation. It's that thing. It's a defense barrier. You've got something flying in, and the thing that takes the blow is the propitiation. Imagine being shot with a handgun. You're wearing a bulletproof vest that absorbs the impact. That vest is your propitiation. Let's say you go to the Spikes game. You're at a baseball game, and you're watching the game, and a foul ball's hit, and it comes careening towards you. Have you ever seen how fast those things come in? And you don't know what to do, and you're about to get crushed, and then some guy next to you with the glove reaches in, reaches over you. This is your propitiation. It takes the blow that's coming your way. When we were sinners, when we were exposed and without excuse, God's furious, just wrath was on course to take us out. And Jesus was the guy who jumped in front of the missile to defend us. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so even now, every time you face exposure, you rightly sense God's displeasure hurtling towards you. And every time 
Jesus still deflects the blow. Now, he only had to die once for all, but he still shows his wounds and he pleads on your behalf and he proves that he took the hit and every day you get to experience the effects of Jesus' death over and over again. This defense is available not only for you and me, but for the whole world. Verse 2. How does this apply? Friends, you must be exposed before you can be defended. You must be exposed before you can be defended. Because the court, if you think of how our system works today, the court does not appoint public defenders for unnamed hypothetical defendants. In other words, you can't go out there and sue the American people. You can't sue the news media or Hollywood. You can't do that. You need specific charges against specific people. And then there's a suit. The point is this, that you can't have an acquittal without having a trial. And you can't have a trial without having a defendant. And you can't have a defendant without charges of wrongdoing. And you can't have charges of wrongdoing without a degree of exposure. The facts coming to the light. So you can't be acquitted before God unless you are exposed. Unless who you really are and what you have really done comes into the light. Then you can go through the process and Jesus can defend you. And you know, it doesn't feel good. It does not feel good to be exposed. But Jesus is there to defend us every time as our attorney and as our barrier. And this is one reason why as a church, we've decided to have small groups after this, after the worship service here. We're going to have some donuts and then we're going to split up and have small groups. A lot of churches do Sunday schools and, and that's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with having a class with more instruction, but we've decided part of our identity as a church is having small group discussions about the sermon is because we need to walk in the light together and we want to be exposed with each other and talk about what we're learning and what did God bring to light during the sermon and how can we help each other with that? And so that's what we're going to do in a few minutes. But in closing, God's nature is to expose, but we don't respond well to exposure. We try to shore up our defenses, we deny our sinfulness, and we refuse to change. However, Jesus defends the exposed, both as an attorney and as a barrier. So, what does this have to do with assurance? As John is trying to give us assurance of faith, Because Jesus defends you, you're free to expose the facts. You're free to confront the brutal facts in your life. And only when you're willing to walk in the light and be exposed, then you'll be able to honestly evaluate the three tests that he's going to give us in the next section. When you're exposed, you'll also need some kind of assurance that it's really worth it to go through this kind of exposure. And so next week, we're going to get the first run-through of the three tests to help us understand, how do I know that I have eternal life? And so let's work to walk in the light together and call one another into the light that we might know Jesus as our advocate before the Father, the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Our Father.